impact, income, and influence. It's the three things that are most important to entrepreneurs today, and that's what this podcast is all about. If you're a coach, consultant, author, blogger, YouTuber, creator, or entrepreneur who believes what they do can change the world, this podcast is dedicated to you. I'm Steve Werner, and welcome to Impact, Income, and Influence. What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to Grow Your Impact, Income, and Influence, the number one place for monetization strategy on the internet. My name is Steve Warner. I am your host. Today, I am joined by Paul J. Huber, and he has written a book called Killing Complacency, which we are going to get into a little bit back further in the show. But first, I want to start off at the beginning with Paul. Um, 20 years as a leading aerospace engineer. Um, how do you get from that to writing the book? Paul, welcome to the show. Yeah, th- thanks for having me, Steve. The The way that I got to that was what I call drive time university. And so it's really the, the same thing that Zig Ziglar and others have talked about where I, I spend a lot of time in the car going to and from work. And so I've listened a lot of audiobooks instead of listening to the radio for music or news or whatever, and really just started digging into what motivates people, what makes them tick, and trying to understand really what it is that helps people um, get motivated and really drives them. And through all of that learning, I said, hey, I, I want to try to figure out what that philosophy is, try to write down my philosophy a little bit. And after a little while, I got to the point where I'm like, it's not just notes for me, it's notes for the world. And so it it really kind of blew up into a book that I wanted to share with the rest of the world because it was something that was helping me and something that was helping me understand uh, what the real meaning of motivation and being able to follow your passion meant versus what a lot of the world pitches to us. And so through that process, I got to the point where I said, hey, I, I want to share this. And so I went from just a little something for me to I call it my drive time university dissertation. So all, totally made up by me, but it's something that I wanted to share and and get out in the world. That's awesome. I mean, they say that, you know, that's how learning the steps of learning, right? First, you learn for yourself, and then you become a little bit competent, and then you become more competent. And then true competency is when you start to teach others and you start to share it out into the world. Um, so I have to ask, I'm a big audiobook person as well. So I try to read a little bit each day, about 30 minutes each day. And then I try to listen to 30 minutes of audio. What are your number, like one, two, three audiobooks? Oh, man, it, it's so hard. I, I have 500 titles in my audiobook collection. And I happen to have a, a copy of my bibliography here. And it's it's multiple pages of different books that I listen to. Some of them ended up on the shelves behind me, and some of them uh, just were really just my audiobook listening, or ended up on my Kindle instead of a paper format. I, I've I've really enjoyed a lot of work from John Acuff, who talks about getting started and then actually finishing, and making that switch from the day job to the making your side hustle full time. Wrote a book called Quitter, and it's not about just quitting your job; it's making that transition and. I'm still in the phase where he felt a little like Superman, where he'd do his side hustle on his weekends, do the speaking and the the authoring on on weekends and and in free time. And then during the 
during the work week, you'd have to put that uh, Clark Kent suit back on and go back in the office as just kind of the, the normal guy. And so I'm, I'm more in that phase of just trying to get the information out there, get my book known so that I can quit that day job and go find that side hustle permanently. Nice. I mean, let's, I want to talk a little bit about, I mean, I think it's amazing, first off, that you listen to books on tape, and that you did it enough that you started to become competent and started to teach others. And then you went and wrote a book. Because I think there's a lot of people I know, um, I talked to a client this week that he's like, I try to listen to audiobooks, I get through like 10 minutes of it. And then I'm daydreaming and I'm out doing other stuff. But how, how did you get into this? Because you're a computer engineer. And I think a lot of times when people think of computer engineers and like real techie, like high level stuff, how do you move from that to motivation and, and actually getting stuff done? Because that's really what it is, right? Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, I have to work with people, right? And my job moved really from being that embedded software developer to being someone that leads people. And so, as you noticed, I, I got a master's of business administration from the Jack Welch Management Institute. And, and that wrapped up really a couple of years ago now at this point. But it was part of that process of learning how to deal with people at work and understanding what motivated people. Because when you understand what motivates people and gets them moving, you can accomplish work through others, which is really kind of the definition of management. That's a man that is, you broke that down very, very well. Um, leadership is really understanding other people's motivations first so that you can go in and start to get them moving. Mm -hmm. So I want to take the opposite side of this a little bit. What are mistakes that you see people make when they try to motivate people, when when they try to be a leader? Because we've all seen bad leaders, right? I mean, we anyone who has worked in corporate has seen that. What's like one of the worst, Not I wouldn't call it a problem, but a mistake or a misguided misguided uh, action that people take that that you could correct? What's something that you see? I, I think the biggest thing is balancing that positional leadership and the just motivational leadership. Sometimes, yes, absolutely, boss has to say, well, I, it has to be this way because I'm the boss. But more often, it's a collaborative environment, especially in an engineering environment. Eventually, you get down to the place where a product needs to be built, and then you get to the point where operators have to perform a re repeated process so that you get exactly what you want. But all of the, the literature, like Lean Thinking and Jack Welch's books, talk about engaging the people really at that front line to figure out how do, you, how do we do it better and how do you make it better every day. And so it, it's really figuring out that balance and understanding when to use the carrot, when to use the stick, and how much to collaborate with people so that they have a say, but it's not mayhem in terms of people running every direction. So riffing off that a little bit, I want to talk about hiring people who are passionate about what they do. Because you hear a lot of times nowadays, I've heard, you know, hire people who are passionate, hire, hire people who are super friendly, hire people that are the best person and then train them to the job. Well, eventually, if you're on the front line and you're doing a repetitive process, it's hard to find passion. It's hard to find, you know, I jump out of bed and I'm just so excited. How how would you tell somebody to instill that passion um, and to find their purpose in that job? How would you help a leader build that? So in the aerospace and defense business, it's it's kind of easy, right? Because 
people's lives are depending on what we do. We, we build aircraft components that are really safety critical for that end user. We build GPS, military GPS. They're really critical both for our, our warfighter and for the neighbors of the bad guys, right? Because we're dropping those GPS guided bombs on, on enemy targets and we don't want that collateral damage. We've been watching some World War II movies as a family and you just see that devastation that's everywhere. And we really wanna keep as many people safe as possible. And so I, I think people in my area are, are generally pretty motivated and you can draw that line of connection between the, the frontline operator and the end user. But I think it goes as far as, I don't know, coffee, right? It's totally unnecessary. There's no biological need for coffee, but it makes people happy. It makes them feel good. They love their, their mocha or their latte or just plain black coffee. And it, if you do it right, it tastes wonderful, but there's no, no real need for it. And so it's helping people understand that their actions through making coffee makes people happy. And so it's just understanding what it is, what business you're in, and drawing that line between that end user and the, or the customer the, or the person you're serving and what people are doing. Got it. I think, that's, I think that is really good. If you're thinking about the end user and the joy that you're bringing to people or the lives that you're saving in the defense space or any of that, like that makes you, that gives you purpose, right? I like that a lot. I would love your thoughts on, um, did you read uh, The Effective Executive? I bet that's somewhere, uh, Drucker. It's right. one of the top no, strategy I, books. Right, I, I've definitely read uh, at least a little bit of Drucker and I don't think I've read The Effective Executive. I might have, I might've listened to it. That's okay. The The question that I have is he he asks in there, if you're, if you're an executive, if you're a leader, if you're a boss somewhere in the organization, the employees under you, part of being an employee is you're constantly going to be at odds a little bit with the people above you. You're always going to see, it's very easy to find faults in your boss. It's just kind of something that happens in corporate America. How would you, from both sides of that, like from the the boss's point of view, how would you have them handle that? And is there anything that you could think of that would help? Because I feel like that's where people get complacent, right? They see their boss isn't perfect. They complain a little bit. And that starts like the downward trajectory. And it could be a month, it could be a year, but eventually they hit rock bottom where they don't like their boss, they don't like their job, things like that. How would you how would you fix that challenge? I, I think there's a few things. One is seeing the boss as just another human, right? They, they're gonna be as flawed as you are. They're in the position to, to either help move you forward or, or manage that organization. And absolutely there's, there's gonna be friction, but it, it's trying to figure out that balance of collaboration and just doing what the boss says and understanding where they're coming from, what motivates them. And yeah, a lot of it's driven by being able to make money for the company. And if, as people understand, that their job is to provide value, not for the company to just give them money because they show up. Uh, that, that's really one of the key things to recognize. And then saying, well, how am I best serving that leader and that manager? And yeah, sometimes the, uh, a boss will treat someone terribly. Other times it's it's two-sided in that relationship and the, the friction really goes top down and bottom up. 
Got it. I, I agree. I mean, the friction is both ways, but I think as a boss, I used to be in corporate, I used to manage 300 employees. Um, like, it's just a challenge. Like you do the best that you can, you show up, you're there to try to help people, you're tr there to try to do the absolute best that you can. But we are human, we make mistakes, we're, you know, if anything, your boss's time has, like, way more stuff crammed into it. Right. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about you, you, have, you make the statement that there's irresponsible ambition, and there is responsible ambition. Can you shed some light on that? Yeah, so the kind of irresponsible side of it is really only focusing on the money and only focusing on what's in it for me, or or even just kind of the, the poor execution of it, right? People can be motivated for more or less the right reasons, but it's that execution of how, how do I get that ambition and how do I drive that forward in, in a way that, that doesn't help people that, I guess one example is someone that has irresponsible ambition may say, hey, I just want to make sure that I can collect all of the money that I can for this service that I'm providing, but maybe they're not actually providing value. And so if you really are providing value and you really want to help someone and, and benefit in return for that, then that's something that can help people um, benefit on both sides. And it's the whole basis of economics is that someone provides something that's more valuable to the other person in exchange for something that's less valuable for them. And that net increase over and over and over again helps our economy to grow and for people to, to benefit one another through society. And, if you, and so the, go, ahead. go ahead. Well, so the, I guess the flip side is that responsible ambition and someone saying, well, if I don't win, who loses? Does my family lose? Does my business lose? My community? And so responsible ambition says, hey, if I'm in a leadership position, I'm leading from the perspective of there are a lot of people counting on me and we need to make sure as many of these people can move forward. Occasionally someone has to get laid off. Occasionally someone's not a right fit. But by and large, what I have to do as a responsibly ambitious leader is to make sure that as many people as possible on my team can move forward and can do well in that business. The question, I guess, I'm gonna play devil's advocate a little bit. Do you know Grant Cardone? Absolutely. So is Grant Cardone a responsible, ambitious person? or an irresponsible, ambitious person? Because it, I would love your thoughts on that. I, I think once in a while he'll come across as irresponsibly ambitious, but he learned an awful lot from that 2008 recession and all of the devastation that uh, went through the housing industry. And so now he, he had this thing where he just said kind of off the cuff, oh yeah, I'm filing for bankruptcy. And, and eventually that was proved to be a scam or a, a joke or you know whatever but uh, he's gotten to the point where he is not over leveraged where he has that cash flow that he's doing those responsible act actions to help him be responsible for the investors that are trust entrusting him with their money uh, he's taken a little bit of money from investors leverage that to be even more money when you bring in the the bank loans and stuff like that and really done things that help a lot of people and it, it helps the the people that invest with him. It helps the people that are living at his 
apartments and, and stuff like that. Yeah, a lot of times he'll come off as overconfident or or doing things that are, are irresponsible. But I think, and that that's a lot of what went into my book is seeing that responsibility and seeing how he executed that. I I think that's a very very good answer. I mean, I I think sometimes he can definitely come across as overbearing and a little bit in your face. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, what's his quote, right? You have a duty. Success is my duty, my obligation, right? Right. Um, and providing for his family, the argument that I've heard against that, the other side of it is the dude's worth, the dude has $1.4 billion in real estate assets. He's got $100 million in cash. Do you have to? why should he still be growing? Why shouldn't he be giving back? And is it, is he being authentic? Is he being a responsible adult or responsible adult, responsible, ambitious person? And I would say, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to see how you would respond. I didn't know that you would have had the flag and yeah. you know, and all that. But the, I was actually thinking about when he did the bankruptcy thing, because that right. actually, that bothered me. I was like, dude, that's, to me, he crossed the line. Like that's inauthentic, mm-hmm. and you're lying to get attention in the right way, saying, "Oh, it's a joke." Right. Like, come on, you don't have to go that far. But his his response was, "I couldn't get any attention in the marketplace, and my responsibility is to do whatever I can to get attention." I feel like that to me crossed the line. Uh, but I'm I really appreciate your view on it, and I think I think you're right for ninety eight percent of it. Right. Yeah. And, and we may disagree with certain things that they do. And and sometimes it does cross the line a little bit. But he, in terms of someone who makes sure that his investors are taken care of, that his family's taken care of. And, you know, part of what where we are in our economy is we have franchises and other things that kind of figure out the formula to make things work well. And I think if you handed me you know a billion dollars worth of real estate to manage, I'd be lost. But he's gotten to that point where he's built himself up and he's built his team up so that he can manage that. Yeah, that is very true. I mean, I would I would feel comfortable if he had my money. Um, I think that he has done really, really well with that. So to follow up, you had the 10X flag. Talk mm-hmm. to us a little bit about growth mindset. I mean, obviously you have a growth mindset. You're taking the time to listen to 500 books. How long is your commute? The, the commute's like 20 minutes each way. It, it is, it's not long. Now, you, you mentioned about people kind of their mind wandering and stuff like that. My trick is I, I turn the speed up to the point where I can pay attention to the road and, and drive safely, but my mind doesn't water, wander. So I'll, I'll put it at like 1.3x or in extreme cases, 1.5 or 1.6x normal speed, just because I cannot stand getting that information more slowly than I need to. That's- I learned that recently. That's that's just beautiful. I mean, I run mine at anywhere between 1.6 and 2.0. And almost everyone who rides in my car with me that that hears any of it, they're like, how do you not like the I went on a date a couple of weeks ago and the girl was like, how do you not have anxiety from this? <laughs> and uh, I thought like I actually have um, I guess we're talking about Grant Cardone. I have uh, one of his CDs that I burned at 2.x speed. It's the only CD in my car. Um, and I have it just so that it randomly plays. If I don't have an audiobook on or something else, that's playing. Um, and she was just like, how do you not? I was like, yeah, whatever. 
Like you just get used to it and you definitely, it keeps your mind more engaged with it. Yeah, for sure. And the, the great thing about technology is you can move that slider bar wherever you want. And if, if you really need that, you know, 0.9 X speed, go for it. If you can stand two X, then great. You can get that information better. It's, it's as close as you can get to just downloading something Johnny mnemonic style. That's so. very, very true. Um, I do want to talk a little bit just about growth mindset. I want to talk about it specifically in leaders. Um, I feel like leaders, if you look at somebody who is a leader, they have a growth mindset. The minute they start to lose their growth mindset is the minute they stop becoming effective in leadership, right? They start to fall off. At least that's what I've seen. I'd love your comments on that though and your thought process on that. How does a good leader grow effectively? Right. I, I think it can go either way. You've at least applied it to your own life. You've done the the education or the reading or whatever it took to get into that leadership position. But so often I, I read... Uh, leadership information or management information, uh, like from my MBA, about picking the right talent, picking the right people. Well, yeah, some of it is you have someone with that potential, but some of it is you want someone that actually can do the job and has experience. And so you have to balance that. Do, what do they come in with versus where do I think they can go? And if you really just only look at potential, you won't have anyone to do the job but you have to understand the growth mindset and the ability of someone to grow and give that expectation to the person that they can grow through the right learning experience. So I think so often we get in the trap of, well, do I have the right talent or do I have the right people on the bus, but can I get the right talent? And how do I take someone that is at least reasonably effective today and move them to even more effective tomorrow? I think that's that is very very good thought process. I want to talk a little bit about deliberate practice. So somebody who needs to get in that growth mindset or has a growth mindset but is trying to take in everything from the world around them, how does deliberate practice? I know this is something when I left my corporate job in 2014, um I think I saw it on a YouTube video or I read it somewhere. And it changed the way I consumed information. So I would love for you to share that with people because I think it's really, really powerful. Because I think entrepreneurs or anyone leaving their job does get overwhelmed very quickly. Yeah, and it's really easy to just buy every program and say, hey, all these different things, they promise to accelerate what I'm doing. Whereas you have to understand which one thing do I want to focus on today and what skill do I need to build and then move from there. Uh, so the important thing about deliberate practice is the deliberate part. So if if someone were to say, grab a bucket of balls and go out to the driving range to, to practice golf, then you know all you're doing is potentially, you may just hit the ball, hit the ball, hit the ball. And if you're not really being deliberate about saying, hey, where'd the ball go? what did I do right? what did I do wrong? And, and understanding and, and growing as you do that practicing, then you're just kind of grinding at it. And it, it's really easy to, to just grind at our jobs, just do the same thing over and over versus being able to figure out how do I incrementally do something harder and harder. And that's really, it, uh, I guess, piano instructions, another great example. At one point, people thought, oh, man, all this music that was developed in the classical era, no one will be able to play that in the future. We, we just have the greatest musicians in, in the world today. But what happened is people figured out how to teach 
piano and, and other music and go from really easy pieces to the really hard pieces. And now it's not too hard to find an eighth grader that can play Beethoven or Chopin. And it's really just understanding that uh, process of teaching someone and moving them from point A to point B and building that expertise. So I want to dive into that a little bit more. So let's break down a deliberate process. I love that you used golf because golf is like the easiest game in the world, right? You're taking a stick and you're hitting a ball, like right. easiest to understand. Yeah. But how would you take somebody on a deliberate process? deliberate practice because tiger woods is a really good example of this he rebuilt his stroke from the ground up three different times how how would you i mean if golf isn't the right thing but i would love to hear how you would actually break down and implement this in like a one two three step process yeah and and that you know i think that's why golf or sports and music are and the arts are relatively easy examples because so many people have figured out that formula. It's a lot harder in terms of leadership and being able to build a business or, or build a team. And so if you're looking at golf, you you look at just the biomechanics of making the swing and then what happens to, to carry that momentum to, to drive that ball a long ways. But when you go look at, at business and leadership, not only are you dealing with more soft skills the, the, the feedback timeline is a lot longer between, you know, hit the employee and they, they go somewhere, right? Well, maybe that one's short. You hit the employee, they leave uh, or, or you get fired. Um, but if you were to talk to an employee and try to encourage them in a certain way, you may not get that immediate feedback. And mm -hmm. sometimes employees dance. I know I was danced a number of times trying to uh, get that feedback from leadership. Oh, yeah, now it finally clicked versus really uh, the, the hard skills of how, how can you hit a ball? How well can you do math? Uh, things like that. And, and so it really takes a lot more practice and that, that feedback back cycle is not as quick. So what, let's, let's look at that then. Cause I, I think this is such an important thing. That's why I'm harping on it and, and digging a little bit. We'll leave golf alone. Cause I agree. Like, right. You can look at a simulator, you can look at a lot of different ways to make your golf swing better, and you can go take direct action on that. If you're looking at leadership inside of a business, because it does take longer, would you tell people, like, how do you actually think that they should trace their actions? Because it's really easy to say, I'm, I read the, ha the seven habits of highly effective people, we're doing XYZ in our business. And then three months later, Maybe it's just that you changed coffee or you allowed people to work from home, but you don't think about those things. So how do you how would you trace that in business and actually measure the output? I think one of the most important things is shortening that cycle time between action and response. And so one thing that you can do, and I know this is really kind of taking over the more of the software development world, is doing things like Scrum and Agile where you have a, a one or two week sprint, or in, in the case of my business, a four week sprint, where it's four weeks of kind of that full development cycle to go from concept to implementation and design and implementation and then and then testing it. You know, and, and so if you can accelerate that time, shorten the deadlines, shorten that feed, you know, action and response time, whether it's more frequent meetings between uh, a team member and their boss or, or what have you, just so you can get that feedback more quickly. Got it. I think that's good, really good advice. 
Uh, the last piece that I kind of want to touch on, which is a little bit of a shift from what we've been on so far, is the shift from scarcity mindset to abundance mindset, specifically in the workplace, right? Because we've all heard, I mean, we've probably seen The Secret. If you're listening to this, you probably have seen The Secret. Um, you understand growth mindset. You understand wanting to kill complacency. But how does abundance mindset fit into that? I think one of the biggest things is understanding that when you are asking for value from someone, wanting that money, the paycheck, or or uh, for them to buy something from you, it, it's not a zero-sum game. You're not taking from them in order to get something for you. If you're truly responsibly ambitious, and if you're truly providing value to someone, then they should want to give you the money because they end up in a better place than where they were before. They have more value in their hands than what they had when they had the money. And, and so that exchange is not just fair, but it's beneficial to them. So many people want that kind of consumer mindset of, well, I want to get, get, get to, to have something for me. But if they're investing and they're buying something that produces more value for them or increases their ability to earn in the case of an education, then they should want to spend that money. And, and so it's really getting people to think about, well, I'm, I'm not, taking from someone when I, I get something from it, it's not too much to ask. I'm providing them value in excess of what the, I've asked from them. And, and, and so that's one important aspect. And, and another important aspect is that that exchange is what in, in theory, you know, if we actually had a, a monetary system that worked correctly in this sense, we, as people provide more value to society, the, the monetary system reflects that. So, Ideally, what would be happening is as our ability to produce value increases and as we do it more quickly and more efficiently and effectively, then there's more money coming into the system. And so there there'd be that balance between that increased gross domestic product, if you want to talk you know, real economics, and the increase in, in money in the system as a result of that. And yeah, we've we've diluted the money system and, and other things that that aren't working real well or, or will pay the price for later. But in the ideal case, um, there's no limit on the amount of money and it's reflecting the amount of value that people provide. And so if people can learn to provide more value, then we can have that more money in the system and no one loses, everyone gains, it, it really lifts all boats. And, and there's no limit to what we can produce or what the world can produce. I would agree. There is definitely no limit. Um, anyone who, anyone who talks to me about, you know, you make too much money, or you're you're charging too much, or you're taking money out of the economy, the ocean doesn't miss a bucket of water. The ocean doesn't miss a swimming pool of water. The ocean doesn't miss, like an ocean tanker worth of water. It doesn't right. matter. There's really infinite. Um, Paul, it has been awesome catching up with you. Can you talk to us a little bit? You have something really cool that is starting after the first of the year. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. And depending on when people listen to this, I, I'm doing this for the rest of 2020 is promoting uh, what I call killitnextyear.com. So that is my program that really leads into a book study. And it's it's not a huge book study. It's limited availability. So if people are able to get in in time that will certainly be kicking off at the beginning of the, the, 
at the beginning of the year. So the first Saturday of 2021, that will be, uh, we'll be launching the course and working with people. And then just in general, that, that will grow into other programs and things like that. But if they go to pauljhuber.com, they can get my book. It links to Amazon where they can just buy the Kindle or the paperback, or they can get an autographed copy either way. And really, I'm hoping that that my book will provide more value to them than what they pay me for it. And the the best compliment anyone can give me is to actually read it and to get through it and, and post a review. But really, just I, I, I hope that it helps shift the mindset for people. And we've talked a lot about the, the growth mindset and killing complacency. And really, it's so important to, to move past um, the, the complacency that a lot of people have. And a lot of times we hear about things like being content and you want someone to be content. And sure, there's a, a positive aspect of that, of not pursuing things that are unreasonable or unattainable. But there's also the aspect of you've just settled into complacency. And so I hope that people learn kind of that balance between contentment and complacency and that they're able to be content with how they're made, who they are, but then maximize that through the growth mindset and maximize that through not being complacent. And so I, I really hope that people don't let that contentment deteriorate into complacency and that they allow it to turn into something like responsible ambition. So that, that's really what I'm hoping to, to share with people. And depending on when they listen to this, they can at least get a copy of the book and stay tuned for any other programs. But uh, if the timing's right for them, just jump on that to killitnextyear.com and we'll kick off 2021 with a bang. Awesome. I am looking forward to kicking off 2021 with a bang. All of those links will be in the show notes as well. Uh, so you can always go there and click on them, pick up the book, check out Killing Complacency. Paul, it has been great to have you on. To everyone else, take action, change lives, and make money. We will see you next time. Nothing has the ability to grow your business more than a powerful one-to-many sales presentation. If you're looking to scale your business, get your message out to more people, and close more sales in an easy and straightforward manner, head over to deathtobadwebinars.com and grab your free course today. Thanks for tuning into the show, and we'll see you next time.